at that time, it was a it was a it was a fifteen hundred year old celebration, and what it was celebrating was an event that had occurred fifteen year fifteen hundred years earlier in Egypt. And what had happened in Egypt was that the Israelites were slaves of the Egyptians, um, and they had been subject to backbreaking slavery and bondage for years. Um, and finally, Moses, if you'll remember your, your Bible stories, Moses came to Pharaoh and he said, let my people go. Let my people be liberated. Uh, we want freedom. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he wouldn't let them go. And God visited a number of plagues upon um, Egypt and upon Pharaoh. And they culminated with a, a very intense and dramatic plague of the death of the firstborn. And, and basically, in this plague, God had told the Israelites I'm going to visit death upon the firstborn of the people of Egypt. And the way for you to avoid this plague is to sacrifice a lamb. You have to bring a lamb and you have to sacrifice this lamb. And you have to sprinkle the blood of this lamb on the doorposts of your house. Can you back up one time, Carmen? Uh, uh, okay. Um, and so this is a depiction of, uh, of, a, of a person sprinkling the or, or putting the blood on the doorpost. This was, um, and then in the story, the angel of death came and visited upon um, on Egypt, and it, and it passed over the houses that had the blood sprinkled on the doorpost, and that's where the term Passover comes from. And as a result of that plague, Pharaoh finally broke and said, okay, leave, let the Israelites go. And then there was a mass exodus of the Israelites to the promised land. Um, and this is a profound and deep story that at some point we'll, we'll, we'll go through the book of Exodus, you know. Um, but it's a brilliant story. But the point of it was that after, uh, after this event, um, the Israelites every year would celebrate Passover. And they would do it by slaughtering a lamb, eating, uh, sacrificing the lamb, um, and celebrating their freedom from oppression, their freedom from slavery, their freedom from bondage, from bondage, their freedom from foreign rule. It was a night of, it, it was a night every year of anticipation and hope and excitement and exuberance. But it was also a night of remembrance of a sacrifice that was required. A blood sacrifice was required for their freedom. And so Jesus and his disciples were going to celebrate the Passover at this time. Um, and if you'll remember from a few weeks ago, literally hundreds of thousands of pilgrims had come from all over the globe to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Jerusalem swelled from about 50,000 people to Josephus estimates 3 million. Modern scholars think it was less than that, but at least up in the hundreds of thousands. Um, so it was, a, it, was a, it was a massive time of celebration uh, in Jerusalem. So Jesus says to his followers, uh, we're going to go celebrate Passover. And then verse 13, it says, and he sent two of his disciples. Jesus sent two of his disciples to Jerusalem and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. Um, and the disciples set out, verse 16. Uh, oh, yes, I'm sorry. And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. 
And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So this is a strange passage. Why is Jesus telling his disciples to go into Jerusalem? They will see a man carrying a jar of water, and they will go and they will say this sort of cryptic phrase to him. Our teacher wants to have Passover. Where are we supposed to go? Uh, and, and he will set it up for you. So this is kind of a, an odd passage, so I want to explain just a little bit. A lot of the commentaries that I've read on this passage believe that Jesus and, and a lot of the early Christians historically had to use a lot of coded language and a lot of coded signals because there was a lot of oppression. Uh, as you know, Jesus wanted to, the, the, the uh, Sanhedrin wanted to kill Jesus at this point. So Jesus had prearranged uh, a rendezvous at a house in Jerusalem, and the signal was that there would be a man carrying water. Um, why would that be a signal? You would imagine that there could be a thousand men carrying water. But in first century Jerusalem, in first century Israel, the carrying of water was not a task that men performed. It was a task that was exclusively designated for, for women to perform. Um, they had very complementarian roles, if you will. They, they, the men did certain tasks and the women did other tasks and these, the twain never met. Um, so it would have been very unique and very odd for, for a man to be carrying a large jar of water. Um, and Jesus had prearranged, the commentaries think that Jesus had prearranged this meeting, sent two disciples in, and notice that the, co- the coded language they use, they don't say Jesus, they say the teacher wants to come and have Passover. And of course, if, if it turns out that it's the wrong guy carrying a jar of water, he's going to say, I have no idea what you're talking about. And the disciples are going to go to the next guy carrying a jar of water. Um, so they had this coded language. Um, we have these, just by way of example, I, I put together a few of these codes, uh, secret codes that, that we use in, in the contemporary world. Um, if you're ever in a hospital, um, not all hospitals use this, but some of them do, and you hear paging Dr. Brown, uh, this means that a member of the staff is threatened, and this alerts security to go to the room. If they say paging Dr. Brown to room 207, um, you will likely see a group of security guards running to 207. They don't want to alert the patients and frighten everyone, but they do want to get the security there. Um, if you ever hear Mr. Johnson is in Theater 3, that means there's a fire in Theater 3. They don't want everyone to know that, but they want the right people to know that, so they have this sort of coded language. If you're in a taxi cab and you hear the taxi driver say, there's an oil spill at Broadway and 9th, what he's doing is he's alerting all of the other taxi drivers that there's a police officer at Broadway and 9th and they need to slow down. Um, and this is the one that our tech people at my firm use about me. And if they say, if, if they say for example, there's a com- you know, if you had a computer problem, you call your IT people and they fix the problem, they go, yeah, we, that, that problem is a picnic. That means the problem is in the chair, not in the computer. Um, and so I know that I've probably had that code circulated about me a few times at my work. But the early Christians had a series of these kinds of codes. One that you will see, um, and you see it now on bumper stickers and on the backs of cars, was, was this emblem of a fish. What, what Christians, early Christians would do when they met a stranger and they were trying to gauge you know, whether this person was hostile or friendly, they would lean down in the dust and they would draw an arc with their finger. Um, and it was just an innocuous sign. It didn't mean anything explicitly. And if the other person didn't know or wasn't a Christian or didn't know the secret handshake, essentially, they would just think that the person drew an arc. But if they leaned down and drew another arc so that it formed the shape of a fish, 
then the two parties could say, okay, all right, you know, I know who you are, you know who I am, and they could feel comfortable um, talking about their faith together. So this is a, so Jesus sets up this secret signal, this secret code, so that he and his disciples can go into the city and have Passover. We jump into verse 17. And when it was evening, Jesus came with the 12, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Now remember, these are his closest followers. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread with me into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. I want to I focus a little bit on verse 19. Jesus uses this cryptic phrase uh, where he says, one of you, one of you, one of my twelve, one of you will betray me. He doesn't say which one, and he could, but he doesn't. He doesn't clarify which of them will betray him. He says, one of you will betray him and, and betray me. And their response, I find to be profound. Each one of these men, each of whom had been traveling with Jesus for three years, each of whom had seen miracles, each of whom had seen deaf ears unstopped, blind eyes open, had seen lepers healed, had seen the crippled walk, had seen the dead raised. Each of them, when faced with the possibility that one of them would betray Jesus, each of them had to ask Jesus, is it me? Because deep in their hearts, they knew or were coming to know that no matter how devoted they were, no matter how committed they were, no matter how much they loved him, no matter how much they thought they were going to be faithful followers, there was a part of their heart that was capable of that level of betrayal and sin. I think why the reason Jesus kept it ambiguous and cryptic and vague like this is because he wanted his followers to look into their hearts to see what was in there. You see, he knew that within 24 hours, he was going to be killed. He knew that his followers were going to face incredible persecution. And he wanted them to examine their hearts to determine where their allegiance lay. Were they really, truly going to follow him? And every single one of his disciples wondered if the betrayer was him. We all, if we're smart, we have to admit that we're capable of sin. We're capable of things that we don't want to do. Even Paul says, who, who was a devoted follower of Christ, what I want to do, I don't do. And what I don't want to do, I sometimes do. This sin, the, 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 the power of sin is, is ubiquitous. It can take a hold of us and bind us and, and make us slaves to it. We're not, none of us are absolutely free and, and liberated from the possibility of doing things that we absolutely deplore. And I, think, and I think Jesus is pointing this out to these men at this dinner. Okay, verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread, 
And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had uh, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Jesus's words here, we've heard this phrase over and over again. This is my body broken for you. Eat. This is my blood poured out for you. Drink this. We say this every Sunday here. So this phrase probably sounds familiar and comfortable and normal to us. But in the first century, when a bunch of young Jewish men were sitting together with Jesus, hearing him say, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out. This would have been mind-boggling for them. First of all, because it was a startling and bizarre image. But second of all, 1,500 years of Passovers had become what's called a Seder, a ritual. Passover had a script to it. When you celebrate Passover, there is a script. It's a ritual. What happens is in Paso- at the Passover celebration, the youngest person in the room says, why do we, um, on this night, why do we eat uh, bitter herbs? And then the person who's responsible for answering will say, the reason we eat bitter herbs at Passover is to remember the bitterness of slavery in Egypt. And then the, the person will ask, um, why is it that we eat unleavened bread? Matzah or, you know, unleavened bread that hasn't risen. And the, and the person who answers will say, because when our forefathers left Egypt, they left so quickly, they didn't have time for the bread to rise. And there's this back and forth question Question and answer, question and answer, and it's a script. And, it, and, and, and every Jew from 3,500 years ago who celebrates Passover would know this ritual. They would know this script. They would know that, it, that this is it's called the, the Ma Nishtana, which means what is different, what is different about this night. It was a script that was spoken at every dinner table, at every Passover. Every disciple in Jesus' group had heard this script from the time they were born until this time. And this time Jesus breaks, breaks the ritual, breaks the tradition, and says things that must have sounded completely strange and bizarre and said, I'm broken for you. My body will be poured out. My blood will be poured out. Um, so what is he talking about? They have to be wondering, what is he talking about? Wrapped up in this passage are two themes that I just want us to talk through um, for the next couple of minutes. Uh, two themes that I think just burst from this passage. One is the slavery of sin, and the second is the freedom of sacrifice. The slavery of sin and the freedom of sacrifice. You know how at the beginning of the passage when he says, you know, one of you will betray me, and they all said, is it me? Uh, is it I? Is it me? Um, Jesus, I think, was was revealing to them the possibility of darkness in their own heart. Um, there is a Christian doctrine uh, that you may have heard of. It's called the doctrine of total depravity. And basically the doctrine means that Christians believe that without God's grace, we can't do anything good. Anything good that we do is the direct result of God's grace. That's the doctrine of total, total depravity. Um, my son, Jameson, <laughs> uh, he, well, let me say this. I don't eat a lot of desserts, but I do like dark chocolate. And we have a friend who brought me a bar of dark chocolate. 
And I would just eat a little nibble of this dark chocolate, you know, every couple of nights. And I had this bar of dark chocolate on my nightstand next to my bed. I started to notice that my little bar of dark chocolate was a little smaller than I had remembered when I last put it down. Um, and then the other, the other day, uh, Rebecca put Jameson, had him take a nap in our room instead of his room with his brother because he was keeping his brother awake. And so I guess when Jameson went into the room, um, he asked Rebecca, can I have a piece of chocolate? And Rebecca said, no, you can't have chocolate. You have to wait for after dinner, and then we'll get you a cookie or something, but you can't have chocolate. And he said, okay. Nap time happened. Nap time ended. Jameson comes downstairs. He's playing in the playroom. Rebecca goes over to, you know, fiddle with something, pick something up, and she looks down and notices that Jameson has chocolate all over his hands and all over his mouth. And he's just got this big, innocent look in his face. What? And Rebecca says, Jameson, did you eat daddy's chocolate? And he goes, yes. He knew that he had done wrong. He didn't have to be taught to do wrong. He doesn't have to be taught. If any of you have kids, you know that children don't have to be taught how to lie. They don't have to be taught how to scream at their brother or sister. They don't have to be taught how to steal. They don't, they don't have to be taught how to do wrong. They don't have to be taught. They get that. They understand that. They're very good at it. This concept of the universality of sin, uh, which is in Scripture and which is sort of in our own consciousness, in our own experience, is uh, what Jesus is getting at with his disciples. And he's saying there is the possibility of sin in your heart, and you're bound by it. You're a slave to it. Um, In Mark chapter 7, verse 21, uh, we read this a few weeks ago. Jesus was saying, For from within, from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from out of the heart, Jesus says. In Romans 3, it says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. And there are a number of scriptures throughout the, throughout the Bible that teach us that the heart of man is implicitly bound by sin, is implicitly darkened by sin. This can be viewed as a very pessimistic doctrine. People will say, well, I just don't really like the doctrine of, of, of total depravity or, or universal sin or original sin. I don't like that. I don't want to teach that. It could hurt my child's self-esteem and so forth. But I want to push back on that concept and say, first of all, not only does it bear out in our experience geographically and historically, there is no country in all time that hasn't faced dark sin. There's no country where the people don't lie and never has been. There's no country where the people don't cheat and steal and harm one another and never has been. So we have a sort of universal and geographical evidence for this universality of sin. But I also want to say this doctrine of of the universality of sin, this teaching, is actually, rather than dehumanizing, it's incredibly rehumanizing. And I want to show you why. When Jesus is saying all of us are bound by sin, all of us are slaves to sin, 
What this doctrine does is the first thing it does is it eliminates judgment. If you and I are both equally bound by sin, then I am in no position to judge you and you are in no position to judge me. We are both equally bound by the same depravity, by the same bondage, by the same oppressor. It elicits gratitude. Tim Keller, the the pastor in New York, tells this story or gives an example. He says, if you and your friend were going to rob a bank and, 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 and there's a man standing there and he grabs both of you and says, don't rob the bank. And you both try to tear away from him, but only one of you gets away and it's your friend that gets away and your friend and goes and robs the bank. But this man holds on to you and doesn't let you rob the bank. Then when your friend gets caught and put in jail, you don't go to your friend and say, What's the matter with you? How could you have done this? You go to your friend and say, but for the grace of this man who stopped me, I would be in the same position that you're in. So it elicits this doctrine of universal sin, elicits gratitude from our heart to God for his grace and his mercy in keeping us from the bondage of sin. The doctrine also explains human conduct. The answer to the age-old question Why did he do that? How could he have done that? How is it possible that he could do something like that? The answer to that question is old and it's ancient and it's true and it's real. It's because our hearts are bound by sin. It's almost as if the question should be, how come this isn't happening more often? Why why isn't there more sin in the world? So this, this, it, it explains human conduct. It encourages patience. When my son steals my chocolate, you know, I, I can't, I, I've got to discipline him. I've got to correct him. I've got to guide him the right way. But I, I can't be too harsh on him because I know that the little sin in his heart mirrors and matches the, the big sins in my own heart. In fact, it's probably even more telling when it's your own child because I look at him. He looks like me. He sounds like me. He talks like me. He does all the same things as me. So I'm looking at him and I, and I see him do wrong. I go, that's me. I get that. I get that. Um, and it equalizes humanity. No matter if you're rich or poor, no matter if you're prominent or, or unknown, obscure, no matter who you are, where you are, high, low, east, west, north, south, we are all equally bound by this sin. We're equally on the same playing field. So this doctrine... Rather than be a rather than a dehumanizing doctrine, it actually um, it actually shows us who we really are. It's incredibly revealing about who we really are. Um, C.S. Lewis says, and I, I've quoted this before, but I love it. He says, he says, I believe in Christianity like I believe that the sun rises, not only because I see it rise, but by by its light, I see everything else. That's what this doctrine does for us. That's what this Jesus' teaching does for us. When we learn this principle, we learn about ourselves and about others. There are some people who love the doctrine with respect to others. And they say, yes, the doctrine of universal sin, total depravity. Everybody is bad. But they impliedly leave themselves out of that category. you know. And those are the ones who are just always haranguing someone else. But then sometimes... There are people on the other end of that spectrum who see themselves as somehow uniquely deplorable. Have you ever met someone like that? 
they just think that they think that they're so bad. They feel like their sin is somehow different and unique from everyone else. And this doctrine can actually help to save them from the shame of thinking that they're all alone and that they're somehow unique and distinct and bad in a way that no one else is bad. So anyway, Jesus is trying to teach that we're all bound by sin when he says, one of you will betray me, knowing that each and every one of them will say, is it me? But the second part of this passage is the, what, is the, is the one that I really want to get to, and that is the freedom of sacrifice. The freedom of sacrifice. The slavery of sin, the freedom of sacrifice. I was struck this week by reading the, the article about what they're calling the Aurora Three, which are the three, there were three guys in that, in that um, auditorium in Colorado where the, the man came in with and, and, and shot up the place at the movie theater. Um, and three of these guys, three of the men that were killed, were killed by sacrificing their lives. They actually put their girlfriends on the ground and covered them with their bodies. I don't know if you've read this article. But three of the 12 people who were killed were killed because of the sacrifice that they made, willfully made, to save someone else. And the three girlfriends of these three different guys, you know, are sort of at a loss for what to say. These guys had no legal obligation. They weren't married to them. They didn't have children together. They were just the boyfriends of these girls. And they, when the shooting started, all three of these guys pushed their respective girlfriends onto the ground and covered them and took the bullets. And the three men died and and the three um, girls survived. Um, Jesus says to his disciples in this very strange passage at Passover, he says, my body will be broken and my blood will be poured out. What is he talking about? What is he saying? He says this at Passover and he says this very, very, Um, explicitly, and yet it's still sort of hidden. But what he is saying to them is, I am the Passover lamb that will be broken for you. I am the sacrifice that will be sacrificed for you. Tomorrow, he's saying, I will be the lamb that is broken. I will be the one whose side is pierced. I am your sacrifice I am your ransom. I am your replacement. I am your sin. I am your sorrow. I am your disappointment. It will all be on me. And I will bear that for you. It's it's we've heard it a thousand times, but it's profound. This idea of atonement, this idea of substitution, where Jesus actually substitutes his life for ours. The word atone is, is a great word because it means one of the meanings of it is in tune, like the word tone, like you can hear a tone from an instrument in tune. Jesus's substitution, Jesus's act of sacrifice puts you and I in tune with God. It attunes us to God. Second Corinthians 521 says he made him who knew no sin to be sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 1 Peter 2 says, And he himself bore our sins in his body. He bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 
for by his wounds you were healed. This is a deep Christian doctrine, and it just can fly right over our heads because we've heard it so much. Jesus died for our sins. But it is steeped in thousands of years of history and thousands of years of practice. And when he says at Passover, when Jerusalem is swelling with people, that he, in fact, is the Passover lamb for all of those millions of people in Jerusalem and for all of the millions of people around the world, he is saying something so deep and so profound that it's very difficult to fathom the depth of it. He's saying, I will atone for the world. My blood will be shed to save the world. Our response to Christ's sacrifice. How do we even respond to it? What do we do with this? This is what I'm always asking. When we look at the scripture, we come together and we meet. It's like, how do we, what do we walk away with? How do we do? What do we, how does this apply? It's, it's one thing to have sort of cerebral understanding of it and go, wow, that's really great. What do we do with it? Just a few very quick points, and that is, we live a life of deep gratitude. Last week, we talked a lot about gratitude. Did you guys do that gratitude exercise where you actually went to someone? And I love that. Um, it, was, it, was really, it was really wonderful. But it, we lead a life of deep gratitude. When there's a sacrifice made on our behalf, when the women in Aurora, whose boyfriends, you know, sacrifice themselves, what is in their heart? I, I, I don't know what all is in their heart, but I can guarantee you that for the rest of their life, they're going to have a, such a profound sense of gratitude, such an unfathomable sense of gratitude. I don't think they'll ever be able to put words to it to say, how did he do that? Why did he do that? But they will have a deep and abiding sense of gratitude, and God calls us to that. Um, number two, honorable conduct. Christianity is not a, a, a religion of rules. It is not a religion whereby we do X, Y, and Z, and then God is pleased with us and accepts us. It's not that kind of religion. It's, it's, the, the, the gospel is that Jesus sacrificed for us, and then out of the abundant gratitude of our heart, we conduct our lives in a certain way. Those are radically different concepts. One can be fueled by shame, guilt, fear-mongering, and so forth. And some of us have been subject to that you know, in our lives, and we know what that's about. That's not what the gospel is. The gospel is not line up and you'll be accepted. In fact, the rest of the world is that way. The gospel is, I'm sacrificing for you. How are you going to respond to that? Um, Ephesians 4, 31-32 says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Galatians 5 says, for freedom, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand therefore firm and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Jesus is saying, I'm sacrificing to you. I'm liberating you. Don't put that yoke back on your neck. So honorable conduct, emulation of his service. Uh, when we become followers of Christ, we're called to emulate him, to copy him, to follow him. As we talked about a few weeks ago, we have royal blood flowing through our veins as a result of our relationship with God. And yet we are, dis- we are to disguise ourselves as a servant, humble ourselves as a servant and emulate Christ's sacrifice for us. And number four, and finally, is joyful celebration. Joyful celebration. As, as followers of Christ, 
we should be, our hearts and our minds and our attitudes should be deeply informed by joy, by happiness. I mean, an abundant, full joy, even in suffering. I'm not saying, you know, uh, you know, you're, you're going to, everything's going to be cheery and happy and wonderful all the time. But our lives have to be informed by this deep, bubbling joy that comes out of the fact that our lives have been transformed by Christ's sacrifice. Philippians 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And, again, I say rejoice. He says it twice. Uh, Psalm 5 says, But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them that those who love your name may rejoice in you. I want to encourage you to lead a life of joy. I mean truly joyfulness in your heart. Romans 15, 13 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. A life of following Christ is a life of joy. This suffering, this, this sacrifice that has to, has to happen results in excitement, hope, anticipation, and joy. Jesus, as we conclude here, Jesus is calling us to this life of radical reexamination of our own hearts. Who is this? Who am I? And if we can come to the conclusion that we are in need of a Savior, it will absolutely transform the way we view ourselves and the way we view other people. It will radically transform the way we view the world. And then if we can take the next step and truly embrace the sacrifice, truly allow the blood of our Savior to be sprinkled over our door, if we can truly see him as the Passover lamb that liberates us from the slavery and the bondage of sin, we can step into a life of utter joy, utter peace, utter happiness, utter abundance, utter fulfillment, a life that we have never known before. I can tell you from my own experience that the transformation of a life bound in sin to a life of liberty in Christ has been the absolute greatest, most wonderful, joyful transformation in my whole life. My mother can attest to that. My wife can attest to that. Anyone who knew me before and after can attest to the radical transformation that occurred in my heart as a result of Christ's sacrifice and accepting Christ's sacrifice. I want to close with this. There's a great uh, singer, evangelist, um, uh, preacher back in the uh, mid-late 1800s. His name was Philip Bliss. And he wrote a song called Man of Sorrows. Um, It's also called um, Hallelujah, What a Savior. It's got a different title. But it's it's an extraordinary song. But what's, what's almost more extraordinary about it is that, is that the, after he had written the song, the way Philip Bliss died was almost an exemplification of the, of the lyrics of his song. In 1876, he was traveling to Ohio with his wife on a train, and the trestles on the, they went over a bridge, and the trestle bridge broke, and the uh, train carriages went over into the water. Philip Bliss made it out of the carriage. Uh, but the carriages had caught fire. And so he went back into the carriage to try to save his wife. Neither of them made it out. 
but the sacrifice that he was willing to make in an effort to save someone else is just an absolute vision of what Christ has done for us. And he wrote these lyrics, and I just want to read them to you as we close. And the song, which we'll do sometime here if we haven't, but it, it says, Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah, what a Savior. In my heart today, and I hope that in your heart, you can truly say, hallelujah, what a Savior. Transformation from a life of guilt to a life of purity and clarity and joy and peace as a result of Christ's sacrifice for you. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you today for this passage. We thank you for the depth of it, the seriousness of it, the profoundness of it, and yet the joy 